can I welcome you very warmly on behalf of the Edinburgh International Book Festival to this event with David Almond. David's name is all over the place in Edinburgh at the moment because he's not only here in person, his books are in a number of different venues around town being dramatised and I'm sure some of you will have seen those plays. I know they're very well attended and they've been very warmly greeted as well. So um, he's a man of many parts but this is the real him here tonight. Um, as a boy, David dreamt of seeing his books on the library shelves. He was a great library user, as many uh, writers are, and he dreamt of seeing his books on the shelves of his local library. Um, so the child that he was would be absolutely thrilled now with the, the very significant body of work that occupies the A bit on a shelf in libraries throughout the world, not just in the UK. But the child that he was then also seems very present in the books that he writes now, and um, I was reading um, with great interest of his life. I mean, through his books, there's great descriptions of relationships between siblings and between friends. Um, the landscape and the language, obviously, of the northeast of England, which has so influenced so much of his writing. And the Catholic Church's deep uh, influence on the way that lives uh, were led and are lived, certainly. I've never actually been that convinced that David was uh, solely a writer for young people. And I'm delighted to see in this audience so many old people as well, um, to confirm that view, that his, his books are so widely in, enjoyed. But they are definitely perfectly pitched for young people. He seems to me to look directly into the hearts and minds of readers of whatever age, and he offers worlds that, although they're often magical and rather otherworldly, are so well and completely conceived that you believe them totally. You don't doubt them for a moment. Some years ago, before I'd ever heard of David Almond, I was phoned up by a publicist from Hodder Children's Books who still published David and uh, I was told to expect the arrival of a proof book uh, called Skellig which was a rather, I mean now it's almost part of the English language but then it was a very extraordinary um, title and I remember Andrea, the girl who sent it to me, said to me, when you read this you will not ever forget when you read it and where you were and she was absolutely right, I will never forget having read that book. But he's here in Mind, Body and Spirit today. He's going to do some readings from his most recently published book, The Fire Eaters, and also from his forthcoming, and I've had the pleasure of a sneak preview of this, it's coming out in November, his forthcoming novel, Clay. That's a proof, it'll have a much more exciting jacket on it, I'm sure. Um, but he's also really keen to hear from you, his readers, so there will be a chance for lots of questions later. And after that, we'll be going next door if you've got copies of books for David to sign. But in the meantime, I'm going to shut up, you'll be glad to know, and ask you to give David a very, very warm welcome. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, it's, it's great to be back here. I uh, always love coming to Edinburgh to the festival. Um, it has such a great atmosphere. and um, I think it was the first uh, literary festival I did after becoming a kind of published children's author. And also, I just live in Northumberland, so it's actually very close to me, so it feels quite close to home. Um, so yeah, as, as Lindsay said, I'll do a few things this afternoon. I'll, I'll read a little bit, I'll tell you a bit about myself and my work. But one of the things I want to do is to kind of respond to any questions that you might have. So I do hope that we'll be able to open it up, and if you've come along with any questions that you want to ask, make sure that you ask them. Um, one thing that I always think is really kind of worthwhile seeing, especially to to um, young people, is that when I was a kid, you know, when I was your age, how old are you? 11. When I was 11, I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I used to go to the library in Felling, the town where I grew up, and take these books down from the shelves and just love them. And one of the things I loved about books was, was this, just the look of them, the feel of them, the appearance of them. And that's still what I love about books, is, um, you know, I love all the stuff about writing stories, I love the stories that are inside them. But one of the things that I love more than anything else is just that really simple thing of black print on white paper. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's kind of, to me, it will never be replaced. You know, it's not something, if you try to read a book on a computer screen, bits of it keep disappearing. It's very difficult to read a book that scrolls in front of you. But to read something that's bound together and put into pages is lovely. And those lovely shapes I think are gorgeous. When I write on the computer, I always write in page view, you know, where you can see the whole page in front of you. And I always write so I have a running 
header at the top, which gives the title of the book and my name and the page number. And when you get to the bottom of the page, as if by magic, the computer gives you the next page. And you say, oh, isn't this lovely? All this pa these pages are being created. And then out of that whole process comes something like this, which is beautiful. And this book, Clay, will be coming out in November in a few months' time. And at the moment, and for the last few months, people have been working really, really hard to make this book look as perfect as possible. So when it comes out on the shelves, it will be this lovely object with a beautiful jacket, beautiful hardback, beautiful print. Everybody will have gone through time after time to make sure there are no mistakes in it. And when I was a kid, back when I was 11, when I was your age, and loving books and thinking, I'm going to write books one day, I used to look at books and I think, these writers must have such strange minds to think in straight lines, to think in all these bound pages. And I think I had this kind of thought that in order to write a book, you had to almost think like a book. And I thought the inside of a writer's mind must be something like that. But of course, it's not like that. These books that look so orderly, so civilized, begin, where do they begin? Where do they come from? Come from here, they come from here. And the inside of my head doesn't look like that. The inside of my head is just a mess. It's like anybody's head. It's a mess of all kinds of ideas and notions and things flying around and memories and dreams. And people say, where do your ideas come from? You say, well, it comes from this, it comes from my head. And if you think about your head, it's this little thing, it's about that size. Compared with the size of this tent, it's tiny. Compared with the size of Edinburgh, it's minuscule. But then you think about what's inside that. Inside that head is everything that's happened to you since you were born, all the stories you've heard, your dreams, your memories. You can think about what's happening on Mars. You can think about what happened 10,000 years ago, all inside this little thing called a head. And that's where stories come from. And before I write a story, before I, a story appears like this, the begin in a book like this, and this is a notebook. This is just a simple notebook. But what this is, this is more like the inside of my head than a finished book is. That's more like the inside of my head. And I think that's more like the inside of everybody's head, isn't it? Our heads are kind of imperfect. Books come out and they look perfect. But actually, they begin inside this, and we are all imperfect. We are imperfect beings. And if you think, well, I'm not perfect, and then you set off to write a story, you think, well, anything I'm going to write is going to be imperfect. So I may as well just fiddle around and play and mess about and make a mess. So before I begin to write a book, I make a mess with a pen and paper and scribble and doodle, just like a baby, just like a child who's first learning to write. The thing that comes out looks like this, but what you don't see is that it begins like that, like that. Which is, people ask what creativity is. You know, creativity is that. Creativity is turning the mess that's that's inside your head into straight lines on the page and kind of turning it into some kind of order, some kind of order. So anyway, I thought I'd read a couple of um, sections from two books. One from um, my most recent book called The Fire Eaters, which came out, um, which came out two years ago. Came out two years ago. <coughs> you forget. And, uh, the Fire Eaters. And The Fire Eaters was, uh, in many ways, a, a lovely thing to write. I did lots of that scribbling and um, doodling and um, messing about. Um, but also, it came with great energy. When I was writing the book, it came with great force. And sometimes, when you're trying to write, sometimes you have to trust the things that seem to come easily and kind of run with them. We know that writing can be difficult. It can be a grind. It can be kind of dogged. And it is all of those things. But sometimes, the best things in books just come <gasps> fully formed, and a lot of these chapters in this book came almost fully formed. And I'll just read one chapter from The Fire Readers. And I think some of this comes from a memory that I had. Um, I didn't like school very much. I didn't like my secondary school very much. But I used to love going into the biology room, and um, some of the memories of the biology room came back to me. And it's, um, So this, this, story set in the bio, this part of the story is set in the biology room. One of the teachers mentioned is called Mr. Todd, and Mr. Todd is a very sadistic kind of teacher that you used to get, who used to um, be quite a nasty bit of work, really. And he's actually based on a real person. Mm. I'll not name him. Mm. Um, so this is chapter 33. The biology room again. 
We sat around a table, all of us gathered around Miss Butte. She had a tall glass jar between her hands. Ghostly beasts dangled there, heads and limbs and tails distorted by the curves of the glass, by the liquid that contained them. This time you have to behave, she said. We nodded. Yes, miss, we said. Dead right, miss. We breathed at the memory of Mr. Todd. We glanced at the closed doors. It's not just because of that, she said. She began to unscrew the lid of the jar. It's also, she said, because these were once living things, and like all living things, they were sacred. She took off the lid and the weird scent of formaldehyde rose to us. Some of us put our hands across our nose and mouths. Some of us caught our breath in apprehension. She put down the lid and lifted a pair of tongues. Once these things were as alive as you are, she said, remember that. She dipped the tongues into the jaw. She peered down and gently moved the beasts. Then she caught a head between the tongues and lifted a creature from the liquid. She held it over the jar for a few seconds, letting the liquid drain from it. Then she laid it on a clean white cloth. It was a frog. She lifted it again and held it in her palm and showed us the powerful long back legs and the short forelegs. She showed us the webbed feet and the smooth, slick skin. See how perfectly it was made, she said, how perfectly it was suited for its life between air and water. She stroked its cheek. Pretty thing, she murmured. She laid it down again on its back. She gently tugged its legs until it was splayed on the cloth. It gazed upward through dead, clouded, empty eyes. Does it look strange, she said. Eerie, alien. Does it look very different from us? Yes, miss, someone murmured. Never seen one up so close, said another. The thing from planet Zog, said another. And yet it's also familiar, said Miss Butte. It shares our world, and we know it and recognise it. It is our neighbour, a frog, perfect in its frogginess. She sighed as she lifted a scalpel. She looked to the model of Jesus, hanging there in agony above the door. This is for the best of purposes, she said. She turned her eyes back to us. The word for this is dissection, she said, the cutting apart of the dead. It was never to be undertaken lightly. We gasped as she started a cut. She cut the frog vertically from throat to groin. Then she made another cut, horizontal. With great tenderness, using her fingers and the scalpel tip, she teased back the flesh from her cross-shaped incision. She tugged open the tiny ribcage. She eased apart a pair of tiny lungs and finally exposed the tiny heart. See, she whispered, skin, muscle, bone, lungs, heart, so eerie and alien and so just like us. She stroked its cheek again. Forgive me, little frog, she said. She put the scalpel down. At least it is beyond pain, she said. Next, she reached to a shelf behind her and brought down a battery with two thin wires wrapped around it. She put it down beside the frog and unwrapped the wires. What's missing, said Miss Butte. Sorry, miss. From the frog, what has it lost? It's life, miss. Yes, it's life. And if it had its life again? Sorry, miss. If it had its life again, what then? It would feel pain again, miss. It'd hop off the table, miss. Its heart would beat again, miss. Ah, she said, its heart would beat again. She took one of the thin wires and pressed it into the flesh on one side of its heart. She took the other wire and pressed it at the other side. She gently moved the two wires, seeking their proper place. And then we gasped again. Somebody squealed, because the heart flickered and flickered again. We crowded close. Miss Butte touched and touched again with the wire, and the heart moved in rhythm. It beat just as it had when the frog was alive. She touched other parts of the frog, and the legs twitched, and the head twitched. So is the frog alive again, she said. No, miss. Course not, miss. It's just a trick, miss. She smiled. Yes, it's just a trick, a Frankensteiny trick. She put the battery back and eased back the frog's bones, flesh and skin. She pressed it tenderly with her palm and she looked at us. I'll ask the same question again. What's missing? What has the frog lost? Life, someone said. So what is life, she said. We couldn't answer. Does a frog have a soul? asked Mary Moore. Ask that question to a priest, said Miss Butte. But what it does have is a mystery. We open it up to find an answer and the mystery only deepens. What is missing? What has been lost? What is life? Far off down a corridor, the bell rang. No homework, said Miss Butte. Just remember what you've seen. We filed out. Mr Todd was outside the room with his strap in hand, but we were quiet and subdued. 
He slid the strap back into his breast pocket. As we walked past him, Daniel murmured something. What was that boy? said Todd. Nothing, sir, said Daniel. Todd narrowed his eyes. Daniel walked on, close behind me. Out of earshot, he murmured again. Smile, please. I turned to look at him. I'll get our evil Mr. Todd, he said, and he winked. Smile, please, Mr. Todd, sir. <coughs> and that comes from a memory of that exact thing. I remember as a kid, I don't know if they still do it in schools, but we had, a, they had dead frogs and things inside jaws, and she cut it open and touched it with wires, and the heart began to beat just as if it was, just as if it was alive. And I read that bit because I think those bits of the fire readers probably led me to, to writing this book, which is called Clay. And it's called Clay because um, in the story, there's a boy who says he can take clay and he can mould it into the shape of creatures and he can make it live. And he keeps enticing the boy who's telling the story towards him. And he makes things with clay and he says, look, did you see it move? And he says, no, I didn't. Did you see it move? And he convinces the narrator of the story that he can create creatures from clay and make them live and make them move. Just like in the, the Frankenstein story that was referred to in that. So I'll read, uh, I'll read a bit from, from Clay, just the first, the first section. It's set in, um, set in Felling-on-Tyne, which is a town that I grew up in as a kid. And again, when I was a kid, when I was 11, and thinking about being a writer, and occasionally I would dare to say to somebody, when I grew up, I want to be a writer. And sometimes people would say, you're going to have nothing to write about. How can you write about something when you're just an ordinary kid from Felling? What's that to write about in Felling? And for years, I think I kind of thought that. And I used to try and write about somewhere that was totally foreign to me. I used to write about kind of imaginary places or kind of abstract places. But the more I went on and the more I went on, the more I sort of wrote more and more about Felling. And it was write, writing about somewhere that I'd left behind, somewhere that seemed a different country, but I had actually been there. So I was like an explorer going back to that place. And this, this story is set in Felling on Tyne, and it's about. Um, it's narrated by a boy called Davy. And um, two boys, um, it begins with two boys living in, living in Felling. And a new boy arrives in town called Stephen Rose. So I'll just read the first, the first bit of it. It's called Clay. For a long time, um, the, the title changed quite a lot. And for a long time, I wanted to call it Monster. Because there, are, there is a monster in the story. And it's kind of, from the first chapter, you have to, I suppose, kind of Imagine who the monster might be, who it might be. He arrived in Felon on a bright, nicey February morning. Not so long ago, but it was a different age. I was with Geordie Craggs, like I always was back then. We were swaggering along like always, laughing and joking like always. We passed the players back and forward and blew long strings of smoke into the air. We'd just been on the altar. We were heading for Braddock's Garden. We were on Watermill Lane where a red taxi rattled past us. Black fumes belched from it. The sign at the top said it was from down at the coast. What's that doing up here? said Geordie. A bit of communion wafer was still stuck to my teeth. I poked it free with my tongue and swallowed it. Then I drew on the cigarette again. God knows, I said. The taxi stopped 50 yards away, outside Crazy Mary's house. Crazy came lolloping out with her red hair flying. She had a big flappy flowery dress and tartan slippers on. The kid got out of the taxi. He pulled a battered brown suitcase after him. Crazy peered the driver, then the two of them headed for a front door. She looked back at us. She tried to put her arm around the kid, but he twisted away and went inside. Crazy followed him and the door slammed shut. The taxi driver leaned out of his window as he went past. What are you two nebbing at? he said. Not much, I said. Why don't you nick off back to Whitley Bay, said Geordie. Aye, I said, nick off fish face. And we laughed and belted on towards the garden, yelling, Fish face! Fish face! Fish face! We went through the ancient iron gate and ducked through the thorns, splashed through the edge of the clay pond, went into the quarry and went into the cave. There was writing on the wall again. We held matches up to it. All it said was, We're watching you. You're doomed. Then a big black cross. Somebody had tried to draw a skull as well, but it looked like they'd given up because they were too useless. They're hopeless, I said. I wiped dirt all over it. Geordie sharpened his knife on a stone. He pointed it at me. Soon there'll be a proper battle, he said. Aye, I said. It'll just be them and us, he said. I shivered. I tried to laugh. It'll be the Battle of Braddock's Garden, I said. 
I looked out at the sheer craggy quarry walls, the thick weeds, the deep clay pond, the ruins of Braddock's house high above. The sparrowhawk flew out from its stony nest and flapped up into the open sky. Who was that at Crazy's, I said. He shrugged. God knows, he said. I wouldn't like to be him, though, hold up with that loony. He took a syrup figs bottle out of his pocket and lobbed it over. It was half full of the wine that he'd stolen after mass that morning. I screwed the top off and swigged and smacked my lips. The wine was sticky and sweet, and he could soon feel the little bit of drowsiness it brought. Here, I said, pinch an altar wine to sin. We laughed and snapped some sticks, getting a fire ready. I pointed to the ground. You'll burn in hell, George Craggs, I said. Nah, said Geordie, not for that. You go to hell for proper sins, like nicking a million quid. Or killing somebody, I said. Aye. He stabbed the knife into the ground. Murder! He swigged the wine and swiped his hand across his lips. Here, he said. I dreamt I killed Mouldy the other night. Did you? I said. Aye. Was there loads of blood? There was gallons, blood and guts everywhere. Great, I said. I did it here, said Jory. I stabbed him in the heart, then I chopped his head off and I hide it in the pond. We giggled. Probably that wouldn't be a sin at all, I said. Probably you'd go straight to heaven for getting rid of a thing like Mouldy. Of course you would, said Jody. The whole world would be better off without things like Mouldy. Aye. We were quiet while we thought of Mouldy. We listened to the noises of the curry. Have you seen how big he's getting, I said. Aye. Hell's teeth, I whispered. Aye, hell's teeth. He's turning into a monster. <clears throat> Well, that was fantastic. You'll all be rushing out in November to get that. Definitely one for your Christmas lists. Um, now it's time for questions, and um, we've got people who are ready with a microphone. So um, when uh, David picks you, you just wait for the microphone to come um, so that everyone can hear the question. That'd be great. Any questions instantly? You always do this to me. Oh, we have one in the front, front row here. Hi, my name's Amy. I'm just wondering, uh, when is the audio tape of Fiery Ass coming out? Because I'm visually impaired and I can't read the book. Your publishers are over there. They you? are, yes. And I think they're out now. Yes, it's out now, okay. so you'll be able to get it. Um, yeah. It's also on CD, yes, which would be even more advanced. <laughs> <laughs> There's someone at the back there. See your hand up? Yeah. Hi, my name's Jessica. Um, which was your first book you wrote? The first book I ever wrote was, um, was a, a little thin book, um, a collection of short stories called Sleepless Nights, and that was ages ago. Um, and it's not very good. Because um, for years I, I wrote short stories. I thought what I wanted to do was to write short stories. You know, stories of maybe nine or ten pages. That's what I wanted to do. And I did that for a long time. And then a, a little publisher put out a little collection of, of those stories called Sleepless Nights. And, um, and 12 years later, there was another tiny collection of short stories published. And people used to look at me and say, David, you know, one tiny collection of short stories published. 12 years later, another tiny collection of short stories published. Is this a very sensible way to live your life? <laughs> and then they said to me, they said, um, what you need to do is to write a novel. Oh, that's what I need to do, don't I? I'll write a novel. I kind of grew up. And um, so I wrote a novel, and I wrote a novel, and um, I sat down and began it, and it, it took me five years to write it. So I wrote a book, so there was lots of years passing by. It took five years to write this novel. Um, and I thought it was pretty good, and uh, it was called Seances, and it was a great big, solid novel. And I thought, oh, this is it. You know, we're on the road to fame and fortune. And I sent it to every publisher in Great Britain um, with my lovely agent as well. And it uh, went to every publisher in Great Britain. And every publisher in Great Britain sent it straight back and said, oh, dear Mr. Ormond, I'm sorry, we don't really like this very much. We're not going to publish it. So then people came along to me again and said, now then, David, two tiny questions for short stories, a big novel that takes five years to write and nobody wants it. Are you going to do something sensible now? So I said, yes, I think I will. I said, what are you going to do? I said, I think I'll write another book. <laughs> and I think there's a, kind of, there's a kind of message there. Because um, it is, you know, one of the things about 
doing anything like writing is nobody comes along and says, we really need you to do this. It's like it has to be generated by you. And when you start off doing it, there'll be loads of people who'll come along and say, you cannot do that. How do you think you can do that? So this, this happened to me and happened to me, but um, you just have to take no notice. And you have to be a, a bit... I used to think writers must feel really kind of clever and intelligent all the time. But sometimes you feel really stupid. And when people came and they said, you must be stupid, mustn't you? And I think, no, I must be, mustn't I? <laughs> so you need kind of doggedness, you know? And I always say, it, like, especially to young people, if you went back to my classroom when I was 11 or 12 and said, who in here is going to you know, come and be sort of speaking at the Edinburgh Book Festival and who's going to have lots of books published and who's going to win lots of prizes? Might it be Armand? I said, nah, you're joking, it wouldn't be Armand. But if you could look inside at the kind of that chip of whatever, doggedness and oh, carelessness really and taking no notice of people saying no, then you might spot me. So a good dose of stupidity is, is quite important. What gave you the idea for the character Grandpa in Heaven's Eyes? Um, when I, I remember when I was writing Heaven's Eyes and he, he keeps going, the raft goes to the bank, doesn't it? And they climb up from the bank and they go into an abandoned printing works and inside the printing works they find a character called Grandpa and a young girl called Heaven's Eyes. And um, Grandpa... First of all, he was a kind of, I had him as a kind of tramp, and then I had him as a kind of very sinister, dark, spooky character in the shadows. And then um, I kind of found him as he is, and that sounds stupid, doesn't it? But it's like a lot of writing is not about inventing something. It's not about making up. It's like you write something, and in the writing, in the process of writing, you discover something. So I wrote about the children going down the river on the raft, climbing up onto the riverbank, going into the printing works, and inside the printing works, that's when they, f they find him. They find him first of all in the mud, then they find him in the printing works. And I suppose he comes from all over the place, but I can't say exactly where he comes from. And writing, writing's like that sometimes. You know, you have to kind of dare to write almost like you don't quite understand what you're writing about, but you have to dare to keep on writing and to see what you find when you write. And that happened with Grandpa. And when I started to write him, um, I found him quite kind of scary, and, um, but also quite a powerful character. And I know that kind of um, one influence on Grandpa was a writer called Samuel Beckett, who was one of my favorite writers. And, um, and when I'd finished Heaven Eyes, I looked back and I saw there's Grandpa, and um, I realized that Samuel Beckett had been quite an influence. What inspired you to write Skellig? Skellig, um, I'd written a, a collection of stories, these ones called Counting Stars, Counting the Stars, and um, they're all based on my childhood. It was after I'd written that novel, it was rejected by everybody, and uh, nobody knew about me. And I wrote those stories in Counting Stars, which were really about a kid very like me, growing up in a town very like mine, with a family very like mine. And I took two years to write them, and I put them into a a big envelope, put all the stories together in a big envelope, and I walked to the post box, and I put them into the post box to send off to my long-suffering agent, who by this time had sold nothing, but had <laughs> kind of um, doggedly stuck by me and said, it'll be all right. I'm sure it'll be all right, David, but um, I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know how convincing I was. And um, I put it into the post box, and as I turned away from the post box, I thought, I'll have a break from writing. I'll not do anything for a few days. And as I turned away and walked away from the post box, I heard in the back of my head, I found him in the garage on a Sunday afternoon. I went, oh! And all I had was that one little notion, a story that was beginning with somebody finding something in a garage on a Sunday afternoon. But it just came with real kind of energy and force. And, um, and the story just almost told itself. And that sounds daft as well, but sometimes things do that. And, um, and there are lots of things that I can see where it came from. The house in Skellig <coughs> is just like the house that we used to live in, in Newcastle, even to the extent that when we bought the house, the house had a toilet in the dining room, just like in Skellig, and there'd been an old man who had lived in the house and had died in it. The garage in Skellig is just like the garage in, in the house that we lived in. And also, when I was a boy, I had a very poorly baby sister, just like Michael did. So there were all those elements of like real, realness, reality. But somehow, you know, your imagination is an amazing thing. And sometimes you just have to trust your imagination to almost put things together for you. 
And I think in Skellig, the story somehow just put all these things together to produce a story that just ran, ran. And keeps on running. You know, Skellig has been a stage play, a radio play. So there's something of, about the story. It's almost like nothing to do with me. It's like that. It's, you know, my name's on the book, but I look at it, I think. And people write to me and say, that was really clever, the way you did that, Mr. Ormond, you know? The way you made that connection with that thing, how you, you made that character say that thing that really connected back to that thing and say, yes, it is very clever, isn't it? <laughs> but I haven't got a clue how I did it. Um, when you were younger, what was your favourite book? Um, the book I remember most of all from, say, when I was 9, 10, 11, was um, a version of the King Arthur in the Knights of the Round Table story by Roger Lancelin Green, a book that's still in print. Um, and it's been in print for, I think, almost 60 years now. Um, fantastic, fantastic book. He was a great writer who used to do retellings of old myths and legends. So I loved that. and. Um, I loved um, John Wyndham, the, uh, the science fiction writer who wrote um, great books like uh, The Day of the Triffids and The Chrysalids. Um, when I was a young teenager, I loved uh, the books of a writer called Lob Sang Ramba, who kind of invented a childhood in Tibet, and um, a very convincing childhood in Tibet. It turned out he was a plumber from Essex. And, um, <laughs> and everybody was horrified, said, how, how terrible this is, you know, that, He's hoaxed us. He's played this trick on us. But I thought it was fantastic. You know, after you know, what does a writer do but tell lies? That's what we're, that's what we're here for. Uh, hi, Emma. Um, what would what tips would you give to a young writer? To a young writer, um, first of all, just do it and sit down and do it and enjoy doing it and. Um, and see it as a kind of play. You know, it's like I said before, we all know that writing can be hard. Writing can be hard, can't it? So you have to find ways to make it kind of playful. And one of the ways of making it playful is doing this kind of thing, scribbling and doodling and, and almost writing as if it doesn't matter. Because, you know, the horrible thing about a blank page is when you sit down, if I gave you a blank page now and said, here, write a story, <gasps> the blank page is terrifying, isn't it? But if you think, well, I'm going to write rubbish, so you know, doodle all over it, scribble all over it. And in that process, you kind of allow yourself to, to begin writing. And um, don't get too kind of solemn about it. Um, read other writers. If you really like another writer, pinch things from them. Yeah? You know, so pinch things from them, put them in your story, but then disguise them so they don't seem... <laughs> um, and uh, really just do it, you know, and enjoy doing it. And also do more than you think you can. It's very easy to think, oh, I can just do a little bit. But you think, well, I can do a lot. I can write a long bit. You know, it's like you can write further than you think you can. Do you still read um, novels by other authors? Oh, yes. Yeah, I think it's important to. Um, I think what happens is you kind of, like I say, you know, you pinch things from other writers, um, but you call it influencers, so you get influenced by lots of writers. Um, so I think it's important to, it's like, you know, your voice, the way you talk. The way you talk is, um, it's not really just you, is it? You talk with um, the voices of all the people who talked to you when you were very young. So you learn how to speak by listening to other people. And one of the ways that you learn to write is by reading other people and taking on their voices. And, um, and that's how you develop your own individual voice, so I read lots of books by other writers. It's really important too. And of course it's great too as well. Um, I did an English essay on you a while ago, and about Skellig, but I didn't really understand it. Could you fill me in a bit? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> what did you not understand? The whole story. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, some, I'll sometimes go into school. <laughs> I've been into a couple of schools, and these are the exact words that one teacher used to say. Here he is, the man himself. He'll give us the answer. <laughs> and then he said, so what's the answer? And he goes, I said, I don't know. <laughs> uh, there are things, it's like Skellig himself. Um, you know, people often want me to say what Skellig is. And when I was writing the book, I thought, maybe I should come in at the end and say what Skellig was. 
But in a sense, I did, because in Skellig, he says, you know, they keep on saying to him, don't they, who are you? What are you? And he keeps saying things like, I'm Mr. Bones, I'm Mr. Haddenup. And then in the end, he said, I'm something like a bird, I'm something like a beast, I'm something like an angel, I'm something like you, something like that. And I think that's what he is. You know, he's a kind of a, an accumulation of lots of different things. But in the end, he's kind of mis mysterious. And um, so I'm sorry there aren't any clear answers. But I haven't got any. <laughs> I haven't got the answer. It's like writing a story. You know, it, I think stories are, what they do is the good stories make you think. And then pro part of the process of making you think is kind of not providing answers because sometimes there aren't answers. You know, the world itself, I find the world like, incredibly mysterious and very strange. Um, and there seems to me that some of the things about the world, there'll never be any satisfactory answers to them. So I suppose my, that's my way out of saying Adivana. <laughs> what, what was uh, your favorite book to write? Um, Skellig was a, a, a kind of strange book to write and very enjoyable because it just did this thing of almost writing itself. The Fire Eaters did the same thing. Um, it kind of bounced and just and grew and moved. Um, I've written a picture book uh, called Kate the Cat and the Moon. And that was a great thing to write because you know my books have got lots of words on the pages. Um, one of the things about writing a picture book is that you don't have many words. Um, so you have to work really kind of closely and tightly and um, just work with kind of very small elements. And that was a lovely thing to do. And to work with, uh, to think of working with an illustrator was so lovely as well. You know, look, you see that and, you know, the title of the book has got my name underneath it. And then Stephen's name, Stephen Lambert, the wonderful illustrator. But actually the impact of the book comes through the illustrations, doesn't it? Um, so that, that was a lovely book to write as well. Um, the new book that's coming out, uh, I enjoyed that when it was finished. I really enjoyed it when it was finished because <laughs> it, was, it was difficult. Books are different. Sometimes books are very kind of light and enjoyable to write, and sometimes they're, they're just like a hard, you know, they're hard. When you're writing a book, are you uh, con writing consciously for children or are you exploring things for your own interest? I think I'm just writing a book, really. Um, but that's kind of too easy, I suppose. I, I know some, somehow writing for children has allowed me to write the best I could. And um, when I began to write Skellig, I was halfway down the first page, and I hadn't realized that it was going to be a book for children. But I got halfway down the first page, and I thought, this is a book for children. And I immediately felt kind of free and liberated um, in lots of ways. And it was something to do with the nature of the audience and the nature of um, young people. You know, that their imaginations are really quite fluid and quite flexible. And also that young people know that they don't know everything and they're still in the process of learning about the world, which seems to me in lots of ways to reflect exactly what writing is about. You know, writing is like exploring a world and seeing what it's about. So, um, so while I don't deliberately think of writing for children, in a sense I do too. You know, it's, um, it's like the two things together. And maybe what I'm trying to do is to write maybe the books I would have liked to have read when I was maybe 12, 13, that kind of thing. Um, but it is that, you know, that sense of children as an audience has been incredibly, like, helpful for me and really kind of a creative, creative thing for me. <coughs> Could you relate Clay a little bit to The Legend of the Golem and explain if it's an inspiration or a constraint and at what point it entered the story, at least your imagination and, and development of the story? The Golem, um, my computer is filled with like, research articles on the Golem and stories of the Golem because when I was writing Clay, when I began to write it, I thought oh, this is, you know, obviously draws on the Golem legend. The Golem legend is um, a Jewish legend about um, a rabbi who lived in Prague who creates a clay creature who sort of defends the city against the enemies of the city. Um, and years back, I saw a, um, an opera called The Golem. Um, in Newcastle, which had this great 
you know, golem clay figure moving about on the stage. So that was a big influence as well. And when I wrote the first, the first time I finished the book, in a sense, one of the characters tells the story of the golem legend. And I thought, well, I had to take that out because um, it was kind of too obvious. And I didn't want everybody to think deliberately about the golem legend. But if you know the golem story, then it, it's obviously in there. So it was a massive influence on, on, the, on the telling of the tale, yeah. And I had, you know, I'd kind of invented my own version of that golem story that one of the characters tells to another and try to change it. Um, and there are so many kind of retellings, like all you know, great stories, great myths, there are so many retellings of them. A few years back, I did some work with an American writer called David Wisnitsky, who did um, a picture book version. Sorry? Yes, yeah, fantastic book. And um, I spent some time with David, and it was just an amazing thing. And um, So that was a big influence as well. So yeah, the golem was a massive, massive influence. <coughs> Um, at, sc <laughs> at, uh, at school in English, we get taught all these weird methods of how to write books and how to hook your reader and stuff. I don't know if that happened when you were at school, but it, does it is it something to take any notice of, or <laughs> <laughs> like do you actually follow those rules now, or do you what? Um. <laughs> We used to, when I was at school, what we, used to, we used to be told that if you were going to write a story, and we used to physically do it, we used to take a piece of paper and fold it into three. So you'd fold it into thirds and then open it out. So you had three sections on the page. And you had to put beginning at the top of the first section, middle at the top of the second section, and end at the top of the third section. And then you had to say what your beginning was going to be, then what your middle was going to be, then what your end was going to be. And I used to do that, you know, because I was at school. Um, but then if you tried, for me, if I try to do that now to write a story, it doesn't work because if you start writing a story and it's any good, it really starts to take on its own life. Um, so there are lots of um, kind of good advice that people can give you about writing stories. But I think really if you're going to write stories kind of, you know, from your own like impetus for yourself, then the things that people tell you, some of them can be quite useful, but some of them can be absolutely destructive, they can stop you writing. And when I was first writing kind of seriously, I thought, oh, I'll write, read some books about creative writing. But most books about creative writing are total garbage. You know, they're just awful. And uh, because what they'll say, and you see the adverts on the newspapers, you know, we can give you the secret, um, how to write a bestseller. And you think, well, if the person who's writing the, the course knows all the secrets of how to write a bestseller, why aren't they doing that instead of writing a course? Um, and people will always try to give you the kind of secrets and the magic. But in the end, you know, it's writing a story and writing anything is to do with you. And it's to do with your writing your own story in your own way. And some bits of advice can be really useful, but some of them will stop your writing. It's like with character. I used to think oh, it must be really hard to write characters. And I'd read um, articles about character, and they would use huge words like, you know, motivation, characterization. Before you write a character, you must, must know the motivation of your character. And I think that's just so wrong, you know, until you sort of, your character begins to move. How do you know what the motivation is? So you have to be really wary of um, people who tell you how to write. The best writing courses are, um, there's a great organization called the Avon Foundation that runs creative writing, residential creative writing courses, and um, they are fantastic. So they are the best ones to go on. Um, when you weren't really getting anywhere in your career after the short stories, did you ever think about start write about not writing? Not really, because in a sense it didn't matter, you know. Because um, again, to do with this stupidity, it's to do with um, if you're going to write, you set off writing. You, and occasionally somebody will say to me, like, how do you write a bestseller? How do you? And there's no way of doing that. So if you think you're going to write because you're going to become rich and famous, you know, it's, it's stuffed. And if you begin by thinking, what are the odds against even getting published? The odds are huge. And then you think, well, I'll get a book published. But then you think how many books are published. And even now, I don't read the statistics about how many books are published because it's terrifying. 
If you walk into the book tent here and you're an author, it's petrifying because look at all these writers there are. It's terrifying. And they are just the few writers whose books get on the shelves. You know, part, this is the kind of the small percentage of writers whose books get noticed by anybody. And then the number of people who get published is tiny compared with the number of people who set up. But the people who get published in the end are the ones who are just like, say, I'm just going to do it, you know, and I dug it. And you've got to have a bit of almost carelessness, you know, you don't give a damn, really. You do it because you, because you love it, because you're driven to do it. Something drives you to, to write, and to write in your own way. <coughs> You've, ex you've explained that it took nearly 12 years to write your first book. I just wondered how you survived during that time. <laughs> <laughs> or if that's not too personal a question. No, I mean, money's really important, isn't it? I think um, another piece of advice for somebody who wants to be a writer is to find a way to look after yourself. Because um, it's just really hard to make any money from writing, to make a living from writing. It's just really hard. Even people who, have re who are really well known are making hardly any money. Um, so you have to find a way to, to look after yourself. So I was a teacher most of the time. The best job I had as a, as a writer was a part-time teacher because I worked for three days a week, and then I had four days to write, and it was just lovely. Then I had a bit of money and uh, a bit of time. I was a postman for a while because I thought a postman, what a fantastic job for a writer because you get all afternoon off. And I thought I'd write in the afternoons. We had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, so in the afternoons I was sort of flat out. And that's always, um, the balance is really important to find, you know, how to balance actually functioning and actually not being poor and being, having time to write as well is really important. And there's this kind of lovely romantic notion of the, the starving artist in the garret, but um, poverty is not creative at all, you know, poverty is awful. And I've got, and also if you write and you're not kind of immediately successful, but you keep on writing and you don't have a way of making money. It's like waiting in for you is bitterness. Bitterness waits for you. You know, you get to a certain age, you think, well, I haven't had any books published. I should have, and they aren't as good as me. It's just an awful destructive force. So you have to attend to your sort of economic needs. <coughs> I'm just interested in so much children's literature, the action takes place when the children go away from the adults, be it mm. Enid Blyton or Harry Potter. Whereas in your novels, you create these beautiful relationships between the adults and the children. And for me, that's one of the, the, the reasons I so enjoy reading them. Mm. Is that a deliberate decision? It's not, it's not deliberate, no. Um, but I, I can see what you mean. And me, I don't know why that comes about. Maybe it comes from my background, where I grew up, um, we played kind of alongside adults. You know, it was a kind of, it was a place where all generations kind of lived together. Um, so I suppose it comes from that. And I never had that sort of big sense of a big generation gap. I never felt kind of antagonistic, I think, towards my, my elders, um, except some teachers. But, um, but I think that's, that's maybe where it comes from. Um, and I also think it's important that, you know, I'm not kind of into sort of sending messages to young people, but I think it's really important to show that, um, that the world is, is composed of people of all kinds of ages, you know, and um, the people who are older than you are not necessarily <laughs> kind of uh, that different from you, and that they can be helpful to you. And um, I mean, sometimes, it, you know, it seems to me that some of the presentations of the world given to children are they make the world seem far too dark in kind of terms of how adults are described. Um, and I suppose part of me is kind of working against that. You know, I think um, children are brought up to be very suspicious these days. And um, I think it's kind of it's wrong, you know, it's a destructive thing. So maybe it comes from that. Um, what inspired you to write? I think um, it's interesting talking about the adults. I think when I was growing up, um, I came from a, there was a big family. There were lots, lots of us and lots of sort of aunts and uncles around. And 
we had lots of, it wasn't a literary family, it wasn't a very kind of, in a sense, a well-educated family, but it was a family where people kind of gossiped and nattered a lot. So I remember as a kid listening to my aunts and uncles just gossiping and nattering and telling stories and telling jokes. And, um, and it was obviously very kind of apparently unsophisticated, but I had um, you know, a couple of aunts and uncles who could hold a room spellbound for you know, a whole evening and have them falling about with laughter and um, groaning with uh, sort of pain and stuff. And so there's a real talent in that. And I remember as a kid sitting there listening to them and thinking, oh no, you know, they're off again. But also part of me was kind of, I suppose, catching something about that. And, um, and when I write now, I can still feel the, the influence of those voices on my, on my work. Also, but also books, you know, the library, um, the library where I grew up. The library was just down the street from where we, where we lived. And uh, it was just across the street from where I played football with my friends. So when I was in the library, I was often covered in mud from playing football. And across the street, when I was playing football, I was a dream and I was a famous footballer. When I was in the library, I was dreaming I was a famous writer. And it was like the two, two aspects, they were the same thing. Um, so the library was a big influence. Um, when I was a baby, my mum said that she used to take me down to see my Uncle Amos. My Uncle Amos used to run a printing shop. He had a little printing shop at the bottom of town. And he used to print the local newspaper. And um, she said he she used to take me down when I was just a few months old. When the printing machine started working and the printed pages started coming off the rollers, I used to jump up and down and point and laugh at the printed pages. Just like baby's eyes will be caught by lights or by birds. For one moment, my eyes were caught by print. And probably that's still why you know, I, love, I love print. And it goes back to when I was a baby. And of course, you couldn't go to that baby and say, what do you want to be, son, when you grow up? You know, it's like the roots of books, uh, some of them are mysterious. You know, the roots of anything that we do are often lost in times that we can't remember. I can't remember being in Amos's printing shop, but somehow it had a big, big effect on me. <coughs> um, I just wanted to ask you about, because you've referred to teachers and not liking school, <laughs> and. Um, uh, as, a, as a teacher who teaches your books, I just wondered if you had any reservations about your books being taught in school and um, what teachers do to your books when they teach them or how they teach them. I, th I think schools now are sort of infinitely better than schools were when I went to school. And I think teachers now are just so amazing. You know, I go around lots of schools and, um, and I see so many teachers, I think, oh, I wish you had been my teacher. Um, so I think there are such great teachers around now that um, I kind of trust the books to do okay. Occasionally I'll see things done to, to, done to me books in schools and I think, oh no, no, no don't do that. Um, but I get sent a lot of stuff from schools. You know, I get sent a lot of letters and a lot of kind of photographs and stuff of what schools have been doing with the, with the books. And it, some of it's fantastic, you know, lovely imaginative ways of dealing with, uh, with my books. What I don't like is when the books are just treated in this very kind of reductive manner to kind of find oh, some elements of language. And some of the worst examples of that actually don't come from schools themselves, but come from the government. Um, I saw some just incredible uh, worksheets that were designed by some government department about Skellig. And they used to find the first chapter of Skellig to, um, and the, the pupil had to go through the book and find how many examples of different kind of plurals they could find in the first chapter. <laughs> You think, what a great way to use a book. Because you know? <laughs> really what you want, as a writer, what you want is just somebody to read the book. And to read the book in a, a kind of organic enough manner that they feel that they're, they're in the book. Whereas a lot of kind of very overstructured ways of teaching books stop that process, you know, that lovely process of just reading and being engrossed by a book. Um, but a lot of the examples from schools really are are really wonderful. It is a double-edged thing because there is the danger that they'll be, they'll be badly used. Um, but it's a risk I'm kind of happy to take. And also, if you think about Skellig, um, I've got lots of skeptical notions about schools anyway. Um, think about Skellig, which is used widely in schools, you know, not just here but in the States and everywhere. You know, it's kind of very um, skeptical about schools anyway, isn't it? You know, there's Mina saying, you know, schools are rubbish. You know, nobody should go to school. Let's just, you know, fly like birds and be free. 
So Mina is kind of one of my voices, I suppose. I'm a teacher from Canada, living in Ireland right now on a well-deserved sabbatical. Um, but when you first uh, mentioned that you had been a reader and an avid reader at a young age, I thought I wouldn't ask you this question because my question doesn't pertain to avid readers but rather to those who aren't avid. And um, you obviously spend a lot of time in schools dealing with a variety of uh, members in th of your, your reading and not-so-reading audience. And I'm thrilled to see so many boys here in the audience today. Mm. Um, the, the group that I tend to work with are early secondary, very reluctant readers. And I wondered, um, particularly as you've also been a teacher, what your experience has been or what you've noticed in terms of students who don't read. Would you, would you agree that there are more kids not reading? Um, are you writing for that audience in some ways? I thought at first, again, when you, you, you talked about how you're influenced, it sounds like you're, just, you're a writer. You have to write. It wouldn't matter what else was going on in your life. You simply need mm. to write. And you're not writing for a particular audience. But mm. there are a few other things that you've said, particularly when you said that uh, there are a lot of things being written for children that give them a negative impression of adults that make me think that perhaps there are some messages that you're, you're trying to get out. I'm just wondering, what are your observations about the reading public in, in terms of, say, 10 to 14 or 15-year-olds, and are you optimistic? I, I am optimistic, because um, what I see when I go around schools is, um, see, if you, again, if you went to my teacher when I was 12, you know, and said, Armand, does he read much? Nah, he doesn't read anything, you know. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of good at disguising the fact that they don't read. I used to read in the library, you know, I was an avid library-goer. Um, but also, I think we're going to kind of make too much of a thing about kids not reading very much and almost we can overemphasize it and um, turn children away and um, there are some great um, publishers and great books written kind of deliberately to almost entice boys and reluctant readers into reading and some of them do a great job but I think some of them are almost like you know a cheap cheap shots really um, and I just you know, like I say, I just write the books that I write, but it's, it was interesting with Skellig. Um, I'm sure if I'd gone to a publisher and said, look, I've got this great idea for a book that's going to be loved by boys, and it's got loads of William Blake, and then it's got a girl who doesn't go to school, and it's got somebody who might be an angel. I was like, nah, we're not going to have that. We're not to have that. That wouldn't work. Think again. Um, I think what we'll have to do is to trust the stories, you know, and um, great stories are the things that will, um, that will get people reading. I'll go into schools often and I'll say, well, who's your favourite writer in a classroom of, say, 30 children? And hands go up, you know, everywhere I've been, hands go up, and name the Who's your favourite writer? You know, Jerry Wilson, Philip Pullman, you know, Michael Mopurgo, Anthony Brown, Shirley Hughes, and they name all these, these names. And I'll often say to them, I say, look, if you went and picked 30 adults, just happened to be passing by the school, and sat them down and said, who are your favourite writers? Mm, well, you know. You might get three or four who would be saying, oh, I've got this particular writer. A lot of the people who make a fuss, especially in the press, you know, I'm very kind of sceptical about the press and its dealings with, um, with education and with, um, with reading attitudes. You know, they don't know, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't go to the, the extent of trying to go to schools and meeting children. So I am optimistic, but there are, I mean, as you say, there are still like lots of reluctant readers. I don't know, um, good stories. Good stories are the things, good stories. And also all the bits around stories. Um, it's like, you know, at the moment there's a play called In Limbo based on one of my stories on in, in Edinburgh. Um, and it seems to me that the theatre is another way of engaging people's minds too, you know, engaging people with reading, engaging people with books. There's a version of Heaven Eyes on it, another place in Edinburgh now. It's a way of um, opening up the books. And I think. I'm a great believer in the fact that, you know, books are fantastic, of course, they're wonderful. They're, but there are, there's a theatre, there are audiobooks, you know, there's CDs. There are, um, I'm not kind of one of these people who's terribly anti-TV, you know, wonderful things on TV. Um, I think we've gone through a period of almost a very negative kind of self-debating period when we've said that this is the, the PlayStation generation that's not interested in books. But actually, you know, look what's happening with Harry Potter. Now, I know there's lots of you know, things around Harry Potter that are maybe a bit dubious. But should we be surprised that books are engaging kids, that there's a, a, a storm of interest in books? You know, if we believe, believe books are great things, then 
books are great things, and they, they still have the ability and the, um, the impact that they've always had to engage our minds. But it's to down, down to stories, I think, and, uh, and getting the right stories into the right place. And great teachers and great librarians, which there are so many. One last question. One last question. Is it tiring writing books? <laughs> it doesn't look very tiring because you just sit there. You know, you just sit there. Um, but some books are really tiring, yes. Um, some books are not tiring. It's like writing Skellig wasn't tiring because um, it, just, it just did itself, you know, it looked after itself. But writing, say, Kate's Wilderness, the book I wrote after Skellig, um, was exhausting. And when I finished Kate's Wilderness, I was in bed for a week. <laughs> I was just wiped out. Um, so sometimes it is quite tiring, yes. Um, and one of the dangers of writing books is if you just sit at your desk all day, you can become very unfit. And if you're very unfit, then you become tired even more easily. So, um, so you have to make sure that you keep kind of, you know, kind of fit. I'm kind of fit, but um, not that fit. That was a great question, Dave. <laughs> and some brilliant questions there, thank you. And fabulous answers from David Almond. Can I thank... Um, a number of people. Can I thank our signer here, who now is to thank herself, of course, which is always good, um, for a fantastic job. What a lot that adds to an event like this. <laughs> and the athletic bearer of the microphone as well, without whom the event wouldn't be such fun. Thanks to you. <laughs> Thanks to you for coming and for all those great questions. I'm sure we'll all go away with our heads buzzing. But the biggest thank of the evening, obviously, should go to David Allen. I'm going to take David next door to the signing tent where he will be. So if any of you didn't get a question asked, I'm sure he would be happy to answer them through there. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks very much. Thank you.